And for part two of today's morning show, I'm very pleased indeed to be able to uh, welcome back to the program uh, Dr. Art Sear, Colossan Distinguished Professor of Political Economy and World Business at Carthage, uh, author of After the Cold War, director right. of the Colossan Center, and uh, someone whose columns appear in newspapers and journals across the country and, uh, and around the world as well. And uh, we uh, feel very privileged indeed that... Uh, he makes time in his very busy schedule to be a regular participant uh, in the morning show, and we're very glad that we can have him here today. Uh, Dr. Sear, we welcome you back to the morning show. Well, thank you, Greg. It's always a pleasure to be here. It's also helpful to my work. You're very kind always, uh, and I hope you'll keep that up. But you know, my job um, involves teaching, for which I am blessed, and uh, also helping to make us more visible. And Tom Clawson, who along with his wife endowed the chair, our, our alum and trustee, was very good at keeping an eye on things. And from time to time during his life, he would ask me, so what are you doing back there? They lived in Northern California. Sitting around, are you doing anything? And I could always bring up the morning show, and uh, I still do if anybody's interested. But it's, it's a pleasure. It's part of my work. And I appreciate it. Good. Well, I'm glad we can, uh, we can do this. Uh, I think it would not feel right if... Uh, we talked about anything before we talked about uh, what has been occurring uh, in the city of, of Kenosha over the last several days and nights. I should uh, add for the sake of our listeners that we are recording this, uh, this conversation on Wednesday afternoon. And so uh, Kenosha has endured uh, several nights of, of uh, violence and uh, who knows what, what Wednesday evening will bring. We, we won't know that, of course, uh, until after this conversation is over. But I just wonder, uh, as you have, I'm sure, been following these events in Kenosha and uh, some of the protests which have uh, broken out in other cities across the country, um, if you have any thoughts to share, and in particular, if there's any sort of historical context that you would like to share, uh, does this remind you of, of, of things that we have seen in our own past? Yeah, well, I know you've brought this up numerous times just in the last few days that we've been in touch. So let me ask you, um, we normally talk about foreign policy. What, aside from geographic proximity, why do you consider this such an important subject? Well, I think first and foremost, it be exactly because of its geographical proximity. Uh, but I mean, the, the, the events that are most recent, I mean, they are for so many of our listeners, uh, dwarfing every other concern and issue. So I just think it's worth our talking about for a few minutes. And since you're such a prominent and influential interviewer, I think it's very helpful for everyone, including me, to have your perspective on things. You and I know each other pretty well. Uh, not all of our listeners, I'm sure, are as familiar with your point of view. And to actually answer your question, I've tried to uh, uh, thank you for forewarning me I'd like to try to be helpful in ways that go beyond the constant chorus, especially in the electronic media, about these shocking and disturbing events, and rather than simply join the uh, litany of, of hostile commentary, let me make two points that come to mind that I think might at least reflect my best efforts to add something to the discussion. There is a young man named Troy Limbaugh. I don't know if he's been covered in the local media. He works at Frank Steiner, a local institution in Kenosha. <clears throat> and I learned about him by reading the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel 
Uh, if you work at a place like Frank's Diner, you're working pretty hard and, and earning your wages, that's guaranteed. He was busy scrubbing graffiti off the library uh, in, in Kenosha on his day off, which wow. uh, got me thinking, there are lots of professors, including people like me and educators and people who are prominent in the community and anxious to speak out for one reason or another. Uh, I think it would be particularly helpful on public media generally, PBS, but especially public radio. One used to hear more actual working people and actual citizens beyond the, to me, increasingly closed fraternity of people in academia and the media, activists and others, people professionally involved in public affairs uh, who want to talk about these things and to a remarkable degree outside of Fox News and other distinctive conservative media, I have one point of view. I would urge you to uh, have actual working people, people from the Dinosaur Museum as well as the library, the charter school that was attacked during the, uh, during the terrible rioting in Kenosha. Have people like that on the program. I realize it would take some field work getting out and you know, talking to people, uh, or at least by phone, but that's what journalists used to do more than today. So that's one suggestion. I certainly want to commend young Mr. Limbaugh and others on the, uh, uh, on the scene who've been doing this kind of cleanup volunteer work who are not covered in the media. Uh, the second point is you don't have to be confrontational all the time. I honestly don't know what happened in the confrontation in Kenosha that led to the shooting of that, that unfortunate uh, African-American victim, who I, I gather from the latest news is, is still alive but paralyzed. The BBC I consider to be a really good source of information on events of this kind. But outside of the brief, brief video that went viral, which I did make a point of watching after you brought this up, uh, I, I don't know what happened. We do have a sense of what happened in the George Floyd violent confrontation. I think, uh, I'm not pretending to be an officer of the law or an expert on the subject, but whether you're in uniform and armed or in any other line of work, you don't necessarily have to have a direct confrontation. Uh, the officers who had difficulty in, in the Twin Cities dealing with Mr. Floyd, I'm sure as hell absolutely positive right now that the four men who've been indicted for now, second-degree murder or, 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 or being uh, an accessory to murder, they, they wish they had been less aggressive, especially the terrible character who shouldn't have been in uniform with, with a firearm and a badge, who in effect stood on his neck till he was dead. Uh, if, you said, if somebody that you're in the process of questioning or arresting is having a seizure, why don't you call first responders? And they, uh, Twin Cities case and the Kenosha case and most other cases, there's a license, license plate. Mr. Floyd did have a record. Um, you know, take the information, avoid a confrontation. Nowadays, it's fairly easy uh, with surveillance video, especially to track people down, arrest them quietly uh, hours later without causing a local disturbance. And it'll be you'll be a lot less likely to have taken taken the person's life. So those are two thoughts I have that I haven't heard much on the media that I, my best effort to contribute to, to the discussion. As for historical context, I, it, it is important. We're living in a turbulent time. Age does bring some perspective. I was around in the 1960s 
I was very young back then, I emphasize. Uh, and, but not just for that reason, I really thought our country was coming apart with mass rioting uh, and demonstrations in the inner cities of every major city in the United States during that time. I'm not exaggerating. Starting in 1964 and going through till the end of the decade. In 1967, um, Defense Secretary McNamara and President Johnson, although it was Bob McNamara's initiative, sent the 82nd Airborne and elements of the 101st that were still in this country and not in Vietnam to Detroit, Michigan, because violence, uh, shooting, killing, murder, arson, looting had become widespread in that city and things were literally out of, the, out of control. I don't minimize the human tragedies or the violence that we're facing today, but it's not like it was then. And the U.S. is a historically a violent country. We have a lot of civil unrest historically. It's in the nature of our system. I don't minimize what's going on, but thanks for asking for context. So that's my best effort. I, I, I do try to avoid just joining the easy chorus. Hmm. It's become increasingly pervasive in the media. I appreciate that. I appreciate the contribution you've, you've made. Also in your, in your work life, uh, I tend to talk too much, including right now, but it's not necessarily in a violent confrontation. In the workplace, I think it's good advice. It's helped me in my career and not just early on. If you're dealing with a difficult person, a troubled person, an incompetent person, a psychopathic person, and I've dealt with them and not just in the US Army, uh, you know, stay cool, listen, take notes, and see what you can do. But a, a frontal assault is generally not the best way to get victory. But you can get victory even against someone who is in superior authority. If you play it cool, play it straight, but don't confront. And, and there are a lot of police officers who should have taken that kind of advice nowadays. Right. Thanks but for asking. Your most recent column focuses on Russia and Vladimir Putin, and Speaking you call it, cats, yes. Right. <laughs> and you, uh, you, you talk towards the top of that column about the strange world of Vladimir Putin's Russia. And what prompts you to have written this particular column is the, uh, the poisoning of one of Putin's most significant opponents, Alexei Navalny. And there is widespread speculation that, uh, that the poisoning was not accidental, but actually deliberate and, and uh, perhaps at the, 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 the direction of, of Mr. Putin himself. I know this is something you have uh, studied quite a lot, actually. And uh, so I, I want you to tell our listeners more about what is unfolding here in, again, what you call the strange world of Vladimir Putin's Russia. A riddle wrapped in an enigma inside a mystery. That's the quote you're referring to. And it's from the very quotable Winston Churchill, who was talking at the very beginning of World War II in Europe in, in October 1939, after in September in September, both Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union had invaded Poland, which created a terrible dilemma for Britain and also France and their smaller allies in Europe. They, for very good reasons, did not go to war against both Germany and the Soviet Union, but against the one they considered the more serious aggressor and the one against whom they had a formal alliance. The Soviet Union had the fig leaf of protecting 
the security of Poland against German invasion. So as usual in diplomacy, it was complicated. But it's a great quote. And another timely quote from Winston after Barbarossa was launched in late June, the Third Reich launched a gigantic surprise attack on the Soviet Union, which for a couple of years appeared to be uh, on the verge of victory and just defeating and perhaps destroying the Soviet regime. Uh, Churchill, a famous anti-communist as well as anti-Nazi, uh, but from early on a fierce opponent of communism, including in Britain, where there was an active communist party and uh, communist control labor unions as there were in this country. Winston said, uh, if Hitler invaded hell, I'd find a, something positive to say about Satan, meaning that you have to be pragmatic and, and choose your allies uh, in a realistic manner. I don't believe the, to actually answer your question, I don't believe the US and Russia are natural enemies. I don't believe we're involved in a really serious conflict uh, with Russia of the sort that plagued the world during Churchill's time. Uh, they are in many important ways a rival of ours. They're also a, an actual ally of ours in certain endeavors, especially scientific. Uh, but I think we've got to be realistic, and there's no doubt about it that it's a gangster regime, and the regime does engage in violence. Poisoning seems to be a preferred method, partly because you can't kill people the way you used to. Uh, and not being glib about it, it, it can often be very hard to track. Um, and I think that's an important reason why uh, Putin and others in the Russian regime, I don't think every killing originates with the boss but he certainly sets the tone. And I think he has been involved directly in killing people. Uh, there's a whole series of violent incidents, often involving poisoning, that were not necessarily lethal, but did send a message to people who are strong critics of the regime. And um, it, it's, a, um, it's a timely topic, and therefore I wrote the column because Alexei Navalny, prominent and influential Russia opposition leader, has been vociferously critic, critical of Putin. It's interesting, he was in Siberia on the verge of death in a hospital and a secured German airplane, the German government, which has a long history of positive as well as destructive involvement in Russia. The German government saw to it that he was extracted safely and he's now in a German hospital and other victims of Russian poisoning have been treated successfully in Germany. Given the history dimension that you're always emphasizing, it's a fascinating current dimension of German-Russian relations. For those of you just joining us, uh, I'm speaking today with Dr. Art Seer uh, from Carthage College. Uh, this is his monthly visit to the program. Um, you raised some concerns in a, in a uh, slightly earlier column uh, about uh, China. In a, in a column that, I mean, I know other people write the headlines. The, the, the first time I saw this column, the headline made it look like it was really about Hong Kong, but really what it's about is China and China's efforts at expansion and, uh, and some of the, let's say, alarm bells that you think uh, are being sounded or should be sounded because of what we are seeing uh, play out in, in Hong Kong. Uh, explain to our listeners... Uh, what is at the heart of your concern? Well, that column is really about both China and Hong Kong, which has uh, not only historically, but legally, 
as recognized even by Beijing, a somewhat different, uh, somewhat separate existence from the rest of the country. But um, again, operating quite ruthlessly, uh, including um, abusing, capturing, uh, kidnapping, and abusing particular individuals who are giving trouble to the regime. Beijing has become more and more aggressive and more and more militant in trying to repress Hong Kong. That column begins with another great, great quote from somebody else, we must all hang together or most assuredly we shall all hang separately uh, by Benjamin Franklin. Uh, ben, like Winston, is a truly great leader with a multifaceted um, career and personality and great, great impact on impact uh, on uh, history and public affairs, not just in this country and not just historically. Anyway, uh, Franklin was writing at the beginning of the, um, just before the start of the American Revolution, saying we've got to have solidarity or the British, rest assured, will separate us individually. And even if they don't hang us, they'll uh, neutralize our influence. We've got to, got to have solidarity. Uh, it was inspired because the column itself was dealing with another very courageous and successful newspaper publisher, Lei Chi Ying, known by the na name of Jimmy Lei, uh, is a thorn in the side of Beijing, a classic entrepreneur. He put together a very successful clothing company, an enormously competitive business in any country, China or the U.S. or anywhere in the world. And uh, uh, Beijing effectively shut him down. He couldn't distribute on the mainland, literally. They used the most uh, brazen and brutal methods to put him out of business. So then he became a publisher and gave them even more trouble. He was arrested publicly um, under a new security law, which classic dictatorship, the uh, ruling clique in Beijing put through the rubber stamp legislature in total secrecy uh, over the summer. And then suddenly it was announced by President uh, uh, Xi and they started in a very heavy handed way going after people in Hong Kong. Um, Jimmy Lei, uh, was arrested at home, but then they uh, very cruelly took him to his offices and made him watch while uh, they ransacked, they intimidated staff, they ransacked files, they went through computers, they smashed computers. However, this is not uh, the Soviet Union during the Cold War, and it's certainly not Nazi Germany in the 30s when similar tactics were employed. Nowadays, you can't do these things in secret, the very, Mr. Lay's very courageous staff immediately started not only um, uh, taking notes, but broadcasting these things. And on Facebook Live in real time, these terrible police state practices were instantly broadcast worldwide. The main point of the column is uh, the bad old days really are gone because you can't operate a dictatorship like you used to. Hmm. And you can't intimidate, arrest, torture and murder people in secret as the Nazis and the communists and others used to do. It's good for everybody. Right. Hope well, that's responsive. Uh, I was certainly long-winded as usual, but I, I hope that's responsive. You raise these very important issues. Right. Well, and it's an interesting connection to the first thing we talked about today, namely that uh, police brutality uh, and, and, and other kinds of brutality with, with people in any kind of authority, that is nothing brand new at all but what is new is that we are seeing these now that they are being recorded and seen by the public which helps explain why we 
have a, a different kind of attentiveness to this than, than we once did. I'll give you a pass on that one, Greg, but I do want to say we do have in this country and in Britain and in others, mostly in the West, uh, the rule of law and the dictatorships you're referring to basically do not. So individuals do abuse authority, but I made a point of uh, putting on the record of this program, keep in mind that four police officers uh, who are involved in the death of uh, Mr. Floyd have been indicted on serious felony charges. That's a difference between the way this country operates and other countries operate. Right. In I the was case only... of Hong the British, who have the rule of law, since you brought this matter up, uh, their 1897 treaty came to an end uh, that gave them the territory of Hong Kong in 1997. And the Thatcher government, uh, quite sensibly and pragmatically and good British fashion, did give the territory back, as they should have. Um, to the mainland, but they put in writing guarantees for the um, freedom not only of commerce, but also of speech and assembly in Hong Kong. This new security law is obviously contrary to that agreement. The British have operated quite heroically in their reaction to it. And I will say, uh, if grudgingly, the Trump administration has also, I think, done the right thing in terms of condemning China's action toward Hong Kong. An important canary in the coal mine is the academic community. Um, there are major global universities, about a half dozen in Hong Kong. And if you're really concerned about um, a return to old-fashioned dictatorship, which this country has never had, of course, since the revolution, if you're concerned about how repressive China is going to be toward Hong Kong, then you should pay attention to what's going on with the universities in terms of repressing individuals and institutions. So I sure am glad you brought it up. Thank you. Right. The only parallel I was meaning to draw is that uh, if what you described in Hong Kong had happened even 30 years ago or 50 years ago, uh, there, there, there was no technological way to, in a sense, record that and broadcast that. So. Uh, there is a visibility uh, that technology makes possible for good or for ill. Uh, that's all that, right. Yeah. Let's talk about um, a column that you wrote recently. I'm afraid we won't be able to spend too much time on this, but uh, you explored the office of vice president and how the office of vice president is significantly uh, more important, more influential than was once the case. And, uh, and you, in a sense, lay the, what do we want to call it, the responsibility, the credit for that, uh, to one Richard Nixon, who, of course, served yes. this country both as a vice president under uh, President Eisenhower, whom you so highly esteem, and then, of course, served uh, as president of our country as well. Um, explain to our listeners, and we'll leave it to them to seek out your column to, to learn more about um, how Nixon played a role in the significance of the office of vice president. Um, John Nance Garner, who was um, vice, a very successful Texas politician who was FDR's vice president during the first term two of Roosevelt's um, three plus terms in office said quite crudely, especially by the standards of uh, that time, in the thirties, that the office of vice president is not worth a pitcher of warm spit 
dealing with the rather domineering, to put it mildly, Franklin Roosevelt. Um, it is an important office from the beginning because vice presidents do tend to become president. However, in terms of independent standing and influence, I credit Nixon with, to a remarkable degree, strengthening the office. I had a very complicated relationship with Dwight Eisenhower from the beginning, partly because of Nixon's own self-defeating ways, but he was also a very durable politician. Uh, in the 20th century, there were two politicians on five presidential tickets, Franklin Roosevelt and Richard Nixon. FDR was the vice presidential nominee in the 1920 election. Uh, Nixon worked assiduously to cultivate the grassroots. Uh, Ike's strongest supporters, Eisenhower was not the front runner in 1952. It was the last contested convention through a carefully orchestrated, thoroughly planned operation. The Eisenhower forces outmaneuvered Senator Robert Taft of Ohio, who was the front runner for the nomination. And Ike, of course, was the nominee. Richard Nixon positioned himself brilliantly to, to be essential to the Eisenhower forces in getting votes from California. Uh, it's extremely complicated. And even I won't try to go into that for this, this program. But um, Eisenhower's strong supporters were the internationalist Northeast Republicans. A lot of the politicians were the product of the old time Northeastern upper class. Uh, they favored Eisenhower. They favored Nelson Rockefeller, his, his successor. They, for different reasons, couldn't stand Richard Nixon. He outlived them all and survived. He built a tremendous base of grassroots support. He also built tremendous and very deserved credentials for foreign policy expertise. So uh, in 1960, when he outmaneuvered the old establishment and Nelson Rockefeller for the nomination uh, and almost was elected president, he had an independent base of support in the party. Eisenhower, who stayed aloof in 1960, when Nixon came back in a remarkable recovery in 1968, almost unbelievable political resurrection, and did when Eisenhower endorsed him enthusiastically. So I, I'd urge people to read the column. Um, I'd be glad to answer any email questions on the subject. How Richard Nixon became vice president and president eventually, and how he transformed the office is really extraordinary. Uh, someone I didn't credit, but should have, or would have if, if I was able to write at such length as I talk on your program, I'm, I'm limited to 600 words. Jimmy Carter really did not only publicly announce, but worked assiduously in his way to treat Walter Mondale as an equal, his vice president. Uh, and that also greatly enhanced the office in a less dramatic way, but it built on Nixon's success. Hence, the vice president, pre-Eisenhower, uh, John Nance Garner's point remains valid, but starting with um, Nixon in 1960, every vice president, unless there's a scandal or some other special problem, uh, every vice president has been naturally considered a candidate for president, including Vice President Mondale, who was the unsuccessful nominee, but the nominee against Ronald Reagan in 1984. Yeah, it's a fascinating history. Thanks for asking. It really is. And uh, yeah, I do uh, do recommend that people uh, seek out your, your column and ex explore that uh, further. Uh, you highlight in uh, 
uh, a column from the 6th of August or early August, uh, an important anniversary, the 75th anniversary of the uh, dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima. And um, I appreciated the the care with which you wrote this column, and it reminds me that I'll be sharing soon with the uh, listeners an interview with the author of an interesting book called Prisoners of the Empire, which uh, seeks to give a more measured and nuanced picture of of uh, allied prisoners of war imprisoned by the the, the Japanese and and uh, how they were treated the wide variation of, of the ways in which they were treated and and some of the reasons why uh, many allied prisoners were were treated so brutally so horrifically uh, it's a really really interesting book and uh, I should be sharing that interview with our listeners within the next week or so but in the meantime, let's talk for a moment about Hiroshima and this really important uh, anniversary. Among other things in this column, you mentioned the fact that uh, President Barack Obama was the first U.S. sitting president yes. to actually visit uh, Hiroshima. And you quote some of his remarks at length um, in your column. Uh, what is most important for us to be thinking about uh, in observance of this of this anniversary, well, President Obama was um, eloquent as usual in his comments. I think he went in in 2016, and it's wor- it's easily done on the web. It's worth seeking out his uh, his address. He, uh, I think, he handled it quite appropriately, and uh, in many ways, it was a particularly moving speech. Also deserving credit are uh, Richard Nixon again and Jimmy Carter. Nixon visited Hiroshima in 1964 uh, between his loss in 1960 and his win in 1968. And Jimmy Carter, after leaving (coughs) the presidency, visited Hiroshima. Um, It's getting easier. Despite the pandemic, it's getting easier and uh, cheaper and safer to travel internationally all the time. Our students do it more and more, and it's one of the most positive developments, not just for our fine college, but for the world at large, young people traveling so much. Um, It's worth going to Hiroshima. I've been there a couple of times. And uh, because the bomb was so horrific, the two bombings were so um, terribly devastating we are all very blessed that the world is, aside from the American use of the bombs, which I believe is fully justified, but it's important to debate this this kind of matter. Um, they haven't been used since, and for that we can thank two presidents, Harry Truman, who was the vice president who became president, and Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, Douglas MacArthur was the commander of the um, U- United Nations forces that defended South Korea, and he increasingly and constantly and quite arrogantly um, pressed publicly for expansion of the limited war in Korea and use of nuclear weapons to destroy communism in his view of the world. And President Truman quite rightly fired him at some political cost for his unacceptable insubordination and, and dangerous views. But uh, our system's not going to survive if military officers start second-guessing and, and undercutting civilian authority. Um, and the war was satisfactorily ended without the use of nuclear weapons. In 1954, 
before the U.S. war in Vietnam and Indochina, there was a French colonial war in Indochina. Um, and our French allies, as they were going down to defeat their massive fortress at Dien Bien Phu in Vietnam, not far from Hanoi, in the northern part, was slowly but surely being overrun. An incredible triumph of will, courage, and willingness to die by hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese troops. The uh, French appealed for the use of nuclear weapons, and um, there was a big debate in the Eisenhower administration. And Eisenhower um, refused to intervene directly without exactly saying no to the French, but he also was very emphatic that he wasn't going to use nuclear weapons. And he made the point, again, mostly to uniformed military officers who were pressing for this, especially Admiral Radford, who was chairman of the Joint Chiefs at the time, um, that uh, you men are out of your minds if we use nuclear weapons for a second time in less than a decade against non-white Asian people, we'll probably lose Asia to communism. And he was absolutely right, along with the immorality involved. Uh, it's really important history for all Americans to reflect on, especially because we, our government, did, uh, did use nuclear weapons twice, I believe for defensible reasons, but uh, everyone should, every American should really take a look at the subject and make up your own mind. Right. And of course, this takes us back to the matter of counting the cost of controversy, of, uh, of uh, confrontation and, uh, and of sometimes the, the value of point? in a difficult moment. On that I, note... Excuse me, the Cuban Missile Crisis is also worth looking at. The market in Los Angeles, a prime target area after school and on weekends and the day after President Kennedy's speech announcing the blockade, as a first step to get Soviet nuclear missiles out of, long-range nuclear missiles out of Cuba. Uh, I went to work and the store was absolutely jammed. You can smell fear. And it was the first time in my life that I had actually been around fear. It wasn't a riot. It wasn't violent. Everybody paid for everything as far as I could tell. But people were terrified. When I finished my shift, I was always tired after a shift, but I could barely walk four or five hours later when I we were completely cleaned out, except for a squashed loaf of bread and a couple of tin cans on the floor. People had bought everything. Uh, Americans were quite rightly right, terrified. And uh, Kennedy, who was a very mixed president, in my opinion, the more you learn about the crisis, the better he looks. I mean, we were really close, closer than people realized at the time, uh, including a near miss, one Soviet subcommander wanted to launch a nuclear torpedo. Which they had short range nuclear weapons on the island. And for a time, Khrushchev insanely gave generals freedom to use them if we invade. I tell you, President Kennedy, especially if you're one of his many critics, take a look at that subject as well. I tell you, that guy was really good when it really mattered. In, yes, and it did matter in that. Uh, oh yeah, it was terrifying. It was truly terrifying. Well, on that note, we need to finish out uh, our conversation for the month of August, but I hope that uh, we'll be able to have a, a, a conversation in September and, and well beyond. I always appreciate every opportunity to speak with you about uh, an array of important topics and issues. Uh, Dr. Art Sear, Clausen, Distinguished Professor uh, of Political Economy and World Business at Carthage, thank you for being part of the morning show today. Well, you're a kind gentleman. Thank you. I'll be back. I like to say that. I'll be back. Thanks to you. Mm -hmm.